Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Well, I guess we would pick one item. I'll have to fall back to my Waffle House quote uh, that has uh, been the biggest uh, nightmare ever. When I did a, uh, a piece with Bloomberg, a reporter asked me, why we had the lowest bank default rate. And I explained to them it was because if you have a restaurant, which is the highest default rate uh, in the US, the reason is when you open the restaurant, you don't know if anyone's gonna walk in the doors. They might never walk in and you go bankrupt. Whereas if you own a mobile home park, it's like owning a Waffle House where the customers are chained to the booths. So you know that you will have X number of customers there every day. Welcome to the show. You are listening to the Real Estate Lab podcast. In this lab, we decode the stories, secrets, and skills of the most brilliant minds in real estate investing. Then turn their wisdom into practical advice and knowledge that we can use to boost our income. And now, let's turn it over to our host, V. Is a great day to be alive and to invest in real estate. Labmate, I know what you're thinking. With all that's going on, is it though, is it still the best time to be alive and to invest in real estate? Rest assured, Labmate, we are in one of the best times to hold real estate right now. Why? Well, it's set so right in the name. It's real. We are now a few weeks into QE Infinity, Quantitative Easing Unlimited. Inflation will be unmanageable soon, and people who have other assets such as stocks, bonds, mutual funds, they might see a rise in their portfolio. However, the money that they gain might be worthless. You see, when the government is printing money like crazy, the only thing that matters is holding real assets. Holding gold, holding silvers, holding real estate, real physical things that you can touch. So what does that have to do with today's episode? I'm glad to share with you one of the most knowledgeable investors and mentor that I've come across. Our guest today came highly recommended by Jack Martin, my guest for episode number three. You can listen back to that episode by going to links.realestatelab.com dot live slash number three so links dot real estate lab dot live slash three today we are going to talk to an investors who operates in mobile home park niche for almost two decades along with his business partner they are usually the fifth or the sixth largest mobile home park owners in the u.s depending on the numbers of units at the time people check them out. In fact, if you lined up the mobile homes in their parks on both sides of the streets, it could stretch 100 miles. It's very, very impressive. All right, so why are we talking about mobile home park? I believe that mobile home park is one of the most recessions-resistant classes of properties to own along with self-storage units. Apartments are also up there as well. We are for sure in a recession at the moment. However long or short it might last, what no one knows. There's one thing that can tell you for sure though. Our guest will give us the most 
practical knowledge to put into our tool bags to use right now. Some people might not go that far. Some people who hate him call him the heartless landlord who take advantage of America's most vulnerable peoples, the most unfortunate or the poorest class in America. I myself, I just call him Frank. Our guest today is Mr. Frank Rolfe. Frank started his investing journey with just one mobile home park, Glen Haven in Dallas, Texas. He believed that mobile home parks are all about affordable housing. In fact, let me read a quote for you. Beginning with Glen Haven, I noticed that a mobile home park, when properly managed, offers a significantly better quality of life than a comparably priced apartment. Nobody likes to have neighbors banging on their walls and ceilings or the lack of yards or nearby parking or just the lack of the neighborhood feel. It occurred to me that I could have my phone ringing off the hook if I could deliver an affordable detached dwelling with a yard that was safe, clean, and respectable. That's what I delivered at Glenhaven, and that's what I've been doing ever since. Now, all these years later, owning and operating more than 250 communities in 25 states, Frank put his knowledge to use by writing about the industry, writing books, and provide top-notch education events for investors new and old. I am so excited to share my interview with you. Before I get that rolling though, if you haven't had to iTunes yet to leave a five-star rating, it would mean the world to me if you did that. It's the only way for me to grow the podcast and bringing more guests like Frank. So if you haven't done so yet, head on over to iTunes whenever you get a chance. Leave a five-star rating and a review for me in the show. All right, let's get it rolling. Here's my interview with the one and only Mr. Frank Rolfe. Hey, welcome to another episode of the Real Estate Lab podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today here, Frank. Hey, thanks for having me. Awesome. So a lot of listeners are um, interested in the mobile home park industry. And um, lately, I've seen some crazy thing going on in the industry. And I wanted to ask you about it um, later on in the conversation. But first of all, what was the pistol that you got when you bought your first part? Do you still need it? <laughs> no, it was a little, uh, it was a Keltec nine millimeter, little uh, semi-automatic pistol. And I bought it because I had no idea what went on in a mobile home park. Cause like everybody else, I watched too much television perhaps. So I thought, it, I thought a mobile home park was like a eight mile, you know, starring Eminem. And uh, so no, what happened was I carried that around for probably about uh probably a year. And then I realized I had more danger of shooting myself in the leg with it than needing it. So <laughs> I, uh, I then took the ammunition out of it, but I kept it, uh, I kept it in two different pieces in my car. And then over time, I, I forgot where I left the pieces and I fortunately ultimately found the pieces and then put the thing away. So, uh, <laughs> No, it never, it never got any use at all. Never needed it. Never. I, I learned, I learned pretty rapidly that everything I had learned as an American consumer was a complete lie. Yeah, pretty much. Now, um, 
your your first deal, you brand new, you didn't know anything, right? You just got out of the billboard industry. You sold your billboard business, and correct. You, so you call one of the owners who had uh, used your billboard service before, and you bought the park in DFW from him, four hundred thousand. Yeah, what had happened is my 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 billboard. Uh, when you own a billboard business, what you do is you go out and you either build or buy billboards, and then you rent out the uh, the ad space on them. It's a very strange sector of real estate. So I had actually constructed two big steel monopole billboards on this mobile home park. Mm-hmm. That was my only familiarity with it. That's why I knew the owner's name and phone number. And then over the years, he had called me periodically with strange assignments. The most, now, the most common was he'd call me up and say, hey, can you do me a huge favor? When you're driving around looking at your billboards, can you stop by my mobile home park and ask the manager why he won't answer the phone? That was the most normal one. So okay. I'd go over and knock on the guy, the guy's derelict home. He'd come to the door in his underwear, typically drunk. I'd say <laughs> that uh, Ron, Ron wants you to call him. He'd say, okay, fine. And that was it. So that's as much as I knew. And then I called up Ron when I sold the billboard business to find out more about the mobile home park business. And he sold me that mobile home park on the very first phone call. And I just jumped right into it. Right, so you bought it for four hundred thousand, and uh, I understand ten thousand dollars down, financed three hundred ninety over thirty years. That's correct. Right, so now in landlording, there is a saying that what you don't know, your resident will teach you real fast. Now, being that it was your first part, what things you know, and what were some of the obstacles that you had to overcome? Well, the first thing I didn't know is I didn't know anything about how a mobile home park is built, which is pretty scary. So I never knew where any of the utilities came or went or anything. And I was okay on my water and my sewer because I was on city water and city sewer, but I wasn't okay on my gas and my electric because I was master metered gas and master metered electric, which is something that few people would ever want to undertake owning. So my gas went out on me almost immediately. Uh, In fact, it was so depressing. I was going to give the park back to to the former owner, Ron, and be done with it. And then Ron had already known the gas was going to go out imminently. So he had already come up with a wild solution, which was propane. And that saved the day. So we put in propane tanks and I had no gas delivery to the residents for about two months in the middle of winter. So they had no heat, no way to cook, no hot water. But I unbelievably did not end up on TV because (laughs) I had a manager who did a great job of uh, rallying the people and making it seem kind of fun. She would hold contests, like whose home is the coldest. She would have giant <laughs> bonfire things and held 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 it together. And then later, years later, my electrical went out. So it was a repeat of the same movie. This time, no electrical, which means no lights. And uh, again, no hot water for some of the people. And then no electricity. And uh, so that was a killer. No air conditioning. But we survived that that mess, and then I ended up selling the park in about 19, oh gosh, maybe, no, it would be in the 2000s, probably in the in the early, mid-2000s. So then, knowing what you know now, you know, how could you have prevented that from happening? Well, basic, basic good due diligence skills. I, I knew uh, nothing, and as Benjamin Franklin said, diligence is a mother of good luck. So I had no good luck because I was an idiot. I didn't do any diligence at all. Zero. I asked Ron when I bought it, I said, you're, you're, you're selling it so cheap and it's such insane terms. What is the problem with it? He said, well, it's losing two grand a month. 
So I I thought that's all I had to cure. I thought the whole turnaround was I cure the two grand a month, then I'm in the end zone. I didn't realize there were these two giant latent defects of master meter gas and master meter electricity. So that was the uh, that was the uh, wild ending. But fortunately, despite the fact I was a complete moron and did no diligence, I bought the thing so cheap that just by virtue of raising the rent and filling the lots, it became highly profitable. But I didn't know that at the time. And uh, it had bleak moments when I thought I should uh, I should never have gotten involved in it. Uh, but it, later I figured out it was OK to be involved in it. Yeah, I mean, it, and ultimately it was a uh, great choice by you because now you're, what, the fifth biggest um, operator in the U.S.? That's, that's correct. My partner Dave Reynolds and I are ranked uh, fifth, although I believe by the end of this year we will be ranked sixth because uh, our competitor UMH, which is a public REIT, has uh, gained lots while we sold in 2018 102 properties to a single uh, uh, group. And so we... We ditched about 10,000 lots. I mean, while UMH has gained, I don't know how many lots, 1,000 lots or something. So I think we'll be sixth. But yeah, we're right. We're definitely in the top 10, uh, either in the number fifth or sixth position based on how the year ends. And do you care to be one of the biggest no. ones? <laughs> no, it, it, it means absolutely nothing. There's, there's, no, there's no benefit to being number one, number eight, number 28. It doesn't matter at all. It's just, it's just the way people rank themselves in the industry. Is there a benefit to being ranked at all? Yeah, there is a definite there's a definite benefit to being ranked in the top 10 because when they roll out all these new technologies and stuff, they go to the top 10 people first because they're trying to test out the technology. So since we were in the top 10, we were an early adopter of a thing called Metron, which is a, sub, a high-tech submeter of water. Uh, we were uh, an early adopter of agency debt. Uh, many of those things we got because we were on, we were big enough to be on the radar screen for the test, and then that put us in a really good position when they rolled it out. So there, there has been some degree of benefit to, to being in the top ten, but beyond that, there really isn't much. So what have you seen? Are uh, beside the the two that you mentioned, the submeter and the agency? That there, what are some of the other technology you see in in this space with mobile home part? You know, as far as raw raw technology, the the big technology right now, the the most game changing has been uh, the Metron submetering, which is uh, allows you to submeter water and not have to crawl into the trailer to get the reads, but have it go via computer into the uh, into the atmosphere to a satellite, and then uh, it allows you to read your meters every twenty minutes, so you can spot leaks. And now they're bringing out even more technology soon. They can actually tell you which people have not winterized their lines. It'll tell you actually the temperature of the water, which is insane. <laughs> wow. Uh, but at any rate, that's really been the big tech change. The, the other thing, which is not really technology, but has been a game changer, has been uh, the concept of people who are providing uh, financing for the mobile homes, uh, the most, most prominent of which is 21st Mortgage, which is a division of Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway. And um, that's... That's probably from when I got in the business. That's been the biggest single new item, and then the other big item is agency debt, which did not exist in any in really any strong fashion five years ago, and now it represents over half of every mobile home mobile home park loan made in the U.S. Okay, so now you're seeing more and more agency debts for mobile home parks. So, guns are the days that you can only go in with the owner financing deals. 
Yeah. Well, the way it works typically is most people start off doing owner financing or uh, bank debt. And then as you grow, you segue into what is called uh, CMBS, mm-hmm. conduit debt. And from there, the next stop is uh, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac agency debt. Uh, traditionally, to get into the world of agency debt, you need to have some degree of experience. So it's, you kind of have to, to earn your way into agency. Conduit is the same, but they're a little less strict on the, uh, on the experience side. But that's normally how it works. Almost everyone starts in seller carry. My, I did. My partner, Dave, did. Most everyone I know started on their very first property with seller financing. Got it. And um, just want to touch base with you on, on this subject. Is this something that you will talk in depth um, at your boot camp? Oh, yes. Uh, I mean, we talk about everything at the boot camp from how to identify and evaluate, negotiate, perform due diligence on, renegotiate, finance, turn around and operate mobile home parks. But obviously, you can't buy a mobile home park in the absence of financing. So yes, we, we totally talk about financing. And we also give people in attendance the items you need to get financing, which is twofold. One is a standard bank presentation. Uh, the other is, uh, which is more important, is our our software we invented, which evaluates mobile home parks. And then uh, it not only evaluates, it charts all of the key metrics that the banks like to see. So it gives you a very, very professional bank package. And just so for those of you that are listening, um, if you're interested in learning more, um, it's you can find out more information about Frank's course at www.mxu.com. Uh, the name of the event is Mobile Home Park Mastery. And uh, Frank has a, an event coming up in Denver on June 5th through 7th. All right, now let's get back to the topic of mobile home park and the residents that are living there because one of the things um besides the financing part you know you take over a park and you have residents in there and most uh most popular things that the park operators now want to do is just go in and raise rent right away and i understand that at the uh, event you teach uh, do not rapidly increase rent well, we, we teach people to rapidly increase rent if that's appropriate for what's going on. But even then, we try and hold rent increases down to $50 or less per year, even though the park may be day one, $200 below market. Because even though the price is inappropriate and needs to be higher, you still have to take into account the fact the resident has to accommodate that in their own budget. And so... Um, you know, it's, it's just a part of the industry that, that people know, no one wants to accept from a, uh, from a government side, perhaps, or even, even, uh, a lot of the, the media, you know, loves to portray mobile home park owners as evil. But the fact of the matter is we are the cheapest thing on the block in the world of housing. We are the only non-subsidized affordable housing in the United States and our rents are insanely low and they're not insanely low because that's what the market would dictate they're insanely low thanks to what we call mom and pop quantitative easing so mom and pop never raised their rent sometimes for decades not because it was a good business practice but because they either said well the people are poor they can't afford it or they said i don't even want to screw with it and then some people did it because they didn't know any better but the problem is now new owners have to do sometimes multi-decade adjustments for inflation. Let me give you an example. The uh, standard 
lot rent in the 1960s when most mobile home parks were built was $50 a month. That same lot rent today, that would equate to 500 per month if you simply adjusted that for inflation. Yet, the average U.S. rent's about $280. So we're, we're, you know, about half of where we're supposed to be. And the problem is when, when mom and pop did that, what they did is they starved these properties from the people putting money back into them in the form of capital expenditure to fix the roads and the water and the sewer and all that kind of stuff. So they, they, I mean, what they did, they were really kind of poor stewards of the properties economically because the numbers that they created through their own quantitative easing are not sustainable. And so when you bring these old properties back to life, you got to pour capital into them. You have to bring in professional management. The rents just don't justify that. And then on top of that, it doesn't make any sense that, that new park owners would keep on with mom and pop's insanely outdated rents when the market does not dictate that. I mean, in many of the markets we serve, our rents are 1000 a month lower than apartments. And for 1000 a month less, I'm providing a better product, which has its own lot, your own yard, privacy. It just makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. And, and the, you know, as much as the media hates that narrative, is a simple fact that all of these rents are going to go up significantly. And the reason why is because they're ridiculously, stupidly too low. Right. And the, the media um, lately, and I'm sure you have been asked by, by um, many, many podcasters on this question on the John Oliver piece. Sure. And um, you had set the record straight and there are things that he got wrong. And of course it's fake news is, you know, he's a comedian. So right. he's just, um, just, basically spin things um, out of context. But one of the things that I that I saw coming out of uh, these piece um, was that a lot of people from all walks of life and countries even posting nasty comments and death threats on your social media. So how has your life changed and, and your business changed since this piece came out? Well, uh, let's make no mistake. I, I've had negative media commentary on myself now for for gosh years and years and years um so it hasn't really affected me the thing that probably affected me the most was when we uh let the new york times go live in one of our properties for a week back in 2013 um it was a gamble we didn't know what would happen but you know we thought what the heck we think we do a good job we have no idea so we equipped a mobile home in a mobile home park that was vacant with furniture from a rentist center and the writer for the New York times lived in the mobile home park for a week. And then he went away and he wrote a story that came out in 2014 in which he, uh, he absolutely loved, loved the product and talked to all, all, all the 200 residents and found them all to be incredibly happy. And so he wrote an article that had a quote in there that said that, uh, my partner and I are the greatest things in affordable housing in the U S when the nation's need for low cost places to live has never been greater. So, uh, you know, that had a lot of impact because prior to that, there was no, no positive press on the industry. Following that article, there was tons of positive press from Wall Street Journal and Bloomberg and various people. Uh, but then, you know, our nation right now is in this bizarre cage fight between socialism and capitalism. So at this moment in time, anyone who is in any endeavor uh, that makes any money at all is considered, you know, evil by uh, by those who find that capitalism is evil. So I can't argue with them. I mean, if that's, if that's the new narrative is that any business that makes a profit uh, is evil, then, you know, I guess I want to be evil because I sure don't want to go bankrupt. But that's, that's what's happened right now. And John Oliver is a perfect example 
of this new misguided notion that you know America is just one giant nonprofit and that everyone should be you know hunted down and punished for trying to make money. And the problem, of course, is John Oliver is just he's just a comedian. He's not even a U.S. citizen, I don't think. Uh, right. His uh, his uh, his audience is extremely young millennials from all over the world, many of which you delight in making fun of the United States. And in fact, yes, most of the hate uh, postings I had following the show were from countries I've never been to. Huge, huge number of posts from Brazil, uh, just other countries, some third world countries. I mean, it's just bizarre. So I guess people watch John Oliver in Brazil. I mean, I have no idea, but it, 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 as far as our business went, I mean, our, our residents don't watch the show. Our lenders don't watch the show. No one in the industry watches the show. So I didn't even know the show was on until someone later told me, hey, you were on the show. And then I watched a segment of it on uh, YouTube. But, you know, it really hasn't hasn't had any impact other than it just stands as a good example of how screwed up America is right now on this stuff. And part of the, the reason there is because affordable housing is such in such a crisis right now. And the mobile home park industry has always been looked at as the solution for um, affordable housing. But then, you know, with the benefits of investing in mobile home park, one of the benefits is that they're not building mobile home parks anymore municipality around the u.s do not allow you know anyone to build and i and saw your article on why it doesn't make sense to build one right now so do you like do you see in the future where um you know municipality will start allowing us to build again and at that point you think it makes sense for us to build uh well the answer is no they will never allow them to be built again i can explain to you why because no one in the media wants to talk about it because it's politically offensive to some, but what happened is that the, uh, you know, pe people don't like living near mobile home parks. Uh, two reasons. One is the stereotype they get from the media, but the other is the real life fact is economic suicide. So if you build a mobile home park, if you go to Zillow and look at home prices near a mobile home park, you will see that the, the value of the homes nearest the park are uh, significantly lower than those farther, farther away from the park. So most Americans don't want to live near a park. They have a very bad stereotype against people who live in parks. And as a result, uh, they don't want one built in their neighborhood because it makes their property values collapse. The, uh, but, but that's actually not the big argument. That would be the reason why the public goes berserk. But the reason the cities don't want them, which is never talked about, is the fact that uh, mobile home parks lose huge amounts of money for city governments. Uh, there's a property that we owned in Missouri that we no longer own, we sold it, but it had it was right across from the school. And it probably, I would get, imagine every mobile home in the entire park had at least an average of one kid. I think the park probably had a hundred, let's just say, let's just round it to a hundred kids okay. to go to school. It cost that city 8,000 a year for those kids each to go to school, right? So that, that park is costing the school district uh, $800,000 in, in tuition. So then you'll say, okay, but what do they get out of it? Well, in um, Missouri, which is a 1% tax rate, the mobile homes are valued at probably, you know, not to exceed $5,000, they're all old. The mobile home park itself is valued at, let's say, $40,000 per space. So you have, you know, at 1% tax rate, the city is getting in a whopping, you know, $450 per year. So they're losing on that one park 
you know, not quite, but close to a million dollars. So if you go to a city and say, hey, city, let's build more mobile home parks. They don't want any more mobile home parks. They don't want to lose another million dollars. But they can't say that because that's uh, against the thing called duty to serve law in the U.S., which means you have to treat rich and poor equally. So what they do instead is they they highly notify the residents. They ham it up to the paper and they get all of the locals to come out with uh, flaming torches and pitchforks at the very mention of building a mobile home park in their neighborhood. And then they use that as the blame. So they'll say, oh, no, we think affordable housing is very necessary. But as you can see, the folks in my you know, constituency, they don't want it. And I represent them on the city council. So I'm going to have to vote against it. And that's how it works. We've, we've gone through this a million times trying to do expansions of existing mobile home parks. That's the, that's the general city playbook. They, they, ever, they all know it. Everyone knows it. But they, they figure that everyone's dumb enough not to figure it out who's not in the industry. But that's why you can't, we'll never have any built. And this nonsense now with, you know, uh, HUD saying uh, that, you know, they want, to, they want to urge cities to build them. It's never going to happen. Even if you had a federal mandate to build these, it would still never happen because the cities would fight tooth and nail to not build them, as would the residents. And so until the federal government has the ability to overcome local zoning, which it actually doesn't, uh, it's, it's a non-issue. It's a non-starter. I mean, the only ones that get built today are, are like a tiny home where you can't have any kids in them senior stuff. So, you know, if you want to build a senior, a senior mobile home park, somewhere and even then you'd have to be in the middle of nowhere because no one even wants a senior park near their home because again your home value collapses but you know that that might have a prayer of passage but the rest is just nonsense so right now you 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 mentioned tiny homes um would it be would it be comparable for building a tiny home park to a mobile home park is they kind of similar in a sense. No, here's the problem, people. Again, you know, the media has such an ability to misinform everyone; it's insane. But you know, tiny homes are actually illegal in the United States oh. uh, to be to be sited on just about anywhere out there, because what they don't bother telling you on the shows, and now in fact, there's been lawsuits and cases against um, people who build tiny homes for fraud. That you know, you you can't just go building a dwelling in the U.S. that is not on a foundation. So if you want to build something on a foundation and the city limits, you have to go by what's called the Uniform Building Code or UBC. If you want to build something that's on a chassis with wheels, it has to have a HUD seal on it. So uh, HUD since 1976 has ruled the roost on what is allowed to be used as a housing unit. So the only thing out there that you can actually live in legally for a short period of time without the HUD seal is an RV. So RVs go under a different code. I think their code is called a Swansea code. And under that code from the U.S. government, it says that they're safe for living in in short durations, like a week or two, but they're not intended for long-term housing. So the problem was that, you know, the industry had got on like this since 76 with no problems till the tiny home shows came out. People started building tiny homes. But the problem is oh, tiny homes can only go in RV parks legally. Okay. The problem is in most city RV parks, you're not allowed to live in the RV park full time. So you can see the problem. So people are creating this housing unit, which is actually illegal. Now, it's kind of like Uber because Uber is also illegal in a lot of places. And we pretend it's legal because we say that it's uh, ride sharing, which is actually taxi cab. And we all know it. Right. But society doesn't have enough negativity to shut it down. 
But in this case, it does. So a lot of people who bought tiny homes and put them in RV parks later had the city come to them and say, get out of my RV park. And they said, well, I don't, where, where, where will I go? And they said, I don't care, but you can't be in the RV park. Uh, so the only way you can actually have a tiny home today in a mobile home park is you have to have a HUD seal on the tiny home, which means you have to buy a tiny home that's, that's approved by the U.S. government. And the problem is a tiny home approved by the government is not very attractive. Mm-hmm. So people, therefore, don't want to live in them. So it's, it's literally, it's a, it's a cage fight with Uber once again, only in the world of the tiny homes. I wouldn't, I wouldn't take a big position, nor would I gamble on tiny homes right now because the jury is still very much out on that. Right, right. Now let's transition to um, another topic and also to um, relate to what we talked earlier about uh, raising rent. I understand that your company was sued at one point by part of resident by raising rent too much. Could you share your side of the story on that? Well, yeah, that 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 again is just is just media insanity. We were never technically sued, and it was not even technically a valid lawsuit. What it was is we bought a dying mobile home park in Austin called North Lamar, and oh, there were two bidders for it. There was us and a car dealership next door that wanted to demolish it. So the family that owned it, they didn't want it demolished because they thought the people would all be displaced. There's about 70 people in there. So instead, what they did was they went with us, and we went in and we uh, took away, I don't know, 40, 40 or more con- t- container loads of debris, rebuilt the roads from scratch, repaved everything, rebuilt everything. Um, and, and, and as we're pouring in hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars into the park, the rent in that park, Austin market rent back then was about six hundred dollars a month. The rents were three, I think three ninety, including water sewer. And at three ninety, including water and sewer, it 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 made no sense to even make it as a mobile home park. It was better off to be demolished. So our plan was to go in and save the day, bring it back to life, and raise the rent to four fifty, not including water sewer, which is still two hundred dollars a month less than market. Right. And nevertheless, after we did all this, uh, a city councilman in that district, newly elected, uh, decided this was a great public relations piece. So he went on TV saying that we had destroyed these people's lives by raising the rent $60 and making them pay their own water sewer. Not, he didn't care that we had you know, repaved the roads and rebuilt the entire park from scratch. Didn't care in the least. Didn't matter what you would tell him because he was after their votes. He wanted to show that he was a, the common man, man, and et cetera. So uh, he also, for public relations purposes, because there's no other real reason for it, he gave them access to a free legal aid attorney uh, who then, since it's not illegal to raise rent in Texas, Texas has no rent control, he filed a bogus suit against us, not even with legal name on it. It was a lawsuit under the name of the North Lamar Homeowners Association, which in fact did not exist, and sent that to our attorney as a public relations piece so they could say they filed a suit. Uh, The suit was obviously immediately dismissed, was not a valid suit, wasn't refiled. So if you call that a suit, yes, I guess they filed a suit, but it was dismissed because it was ridiculous and there's no rent control in Texas to begin with, so you can't even file a suit regarding rent control. But nevertheless, yes, they, they, they achieved that honor. And then uh, it was all such a bunch of ridiculousness. I even agreed to do an uh, interview uh, 
uh, not interview, a, a debate with any resident who wanted to debate over what the rent should be on national public radio. So they sent me up in the sound stage. They sent up the residents in another sound stage. The debate lasted about five seconds. Uh, there was only one question. The question was, why do you have to raise the rent? And my response was, well, because if I don't raise the rent, I might as well demolish the property and just sell it back to the car dealer next door. And then that was the, that was the whole debate because you could not argue the fact that the park in Austin on the interstate does not serve any economic purpose as a park. And even today, it's probably worth far more as raw land. So, um, but that's, but that's the story of that. I mean, w once again, it, it's just this endless political and media narrative on mobile home park owners and mobile home parks and all of that. I think part of what fuels it is mobile home park owners don't really have any political voice, don't really have an effective lobby, uh, obviously don't represent many voters. So it's easy, it's easy to beat up on us because, you know, it, it gets you in the news and, and that's great and everything, but, but it's all just, it's, it, it's just, it's a stupid narrative because actually if, if you don't raise rents, you won't have any parks. So then I don't know what the public's idea of a solution it won't hurt the park owners because in many, many cases, the land is worth more than the park. That's why there's about a hundred of them redeveloped each year in mostly into apartments because apartments charge a thousand months more than we do, but into other items, home depots and different things. And the cities love the redevelopment because it gets rid of that loss on uh, tuition. So, you know, it's not hard to redevelop and everyone wants them redeveloped. And with that higher rents, that's what you get. So that's kind of, it's not, it's not like there is a choice of not raising rents. It's a choice of, you can either have mobile home parks that are attractive and well-run with higher rents, or you can have redeveloped land. That's what so I'm Have you redeveloped any of your park? And um... yes, okay. uh, not, not, not in recent times. We've always been, you know, uh, trying to keep them as mobile home parks because we recognize the people who live in them, you know, will be massively displaced. There's nowhere to go. Uh, but for example, I redeveloped a park down in Springfield, Missouri, uh, into high density apartments. I sold it to a high density apartment builder. There was no reason, there's no way you could not because the amount that they would pay for the land was far more than the park would ever be worth. Uh, you see the same function in many parts of America. There was an endless litigation in Palo Alto, California. It went on for five five or more years of a family that owned an old beat up mobile home park and they got an offer for the mobile home park land. I think of, I want to say $16 million. Park itself probably wasn't worth, I don't know what, $3 million or something. And the city did not want them to redevelop. Uh, so the city, city provided free legal aid attorneys and stuff to tie it up in court in California, which California does have rent control. This wasn't a rent control case. It was a development case. And so at the end of the movie, they lost, they lost the case. They lost the appeals. They lost everything. Then the city was facing massive damages for everything they had done. So they had to go in and buy the park themselves. So now that park is owned by the city itself, which now is renting the lots to the customers. So they have no incentive from in doing that at all. What, what do you mean? The the city, because they have to subsidize the school, and now they 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 have to buy the park. The the city has every reason to shut down every park in the United States and to push those residents into another city. That would wow. be the dream of all city government, because then you save a fortune, because you displace the lower income people into other cities, and then it's their problem. That's that's if you talk to politicians and stuff on the very act of, re of redeveloping these parks and making them nicer, bringing them back to life. Their chief argument is always, well, what about this guy in lot 14 who doesn't have a job 
and he's on welfare and he earns like $300 a month and he lives in the park for $100 a month. You know, what do you do about him? Well, that's not as a private property, that's not our problem. So the problem is it, it's not it's not private property owners problems when you have residents who can't afford to live in modern society. That is society's problem. That's why you have this thing called Section 8 through HUD. Problem is Section 8 is broke. They can't take any new people into Section 8. So nobody knows what to do or how to deal with these folks. Now, it's not it's it's not a lot different than the homeless crisis that's going on, obviously, in, in parts of California and other areas where, again, uh, society doesn't know what to do with people who can't earn sufficient money to live traditionally and or don't, even if they had the money, just don't want to live under traditional society guidelines of living. But in many mobile home parks, you buy and bring back the life. Lo and behold, you have some of those folks. And it's like uh, it's like a game of hot potato. So the city doesn't want to deal with it. HUD can't afford to deal with it. They have no money. So they want to stick you, the park owner, with their problem. And that's it. I think that's at the that's that's probably the most important issue. We need, we need to, as a society, come to agreement on what happens in any property being redeveloped to those people who are marginal going in. What happens to them? And I have uh, I see the same phenomenon. I was out driving our properties. I stopped. In uh, I think in Des Moines, Iowa, maybe it was Omaha, Nebraska, and there was an entire street of downtown that was being completely redeveloped. All the retail, all the apartments on top, they kicked everybody out. It was a ghost town. They put a fence around the thing. Big signs, you know, exciting news. We're bringing this entire block of downtown back to life. And then you have to wonder, where are those people? I mean, there were businesses in there. I'm sure there were cobblers and dry cleaners who'd been there for decades. And then the people above it, they'd been living in those apartments for decades. What about them? Where do they go? Why are mobile home park owners the only people who are supposed to, on the private side, solve these issues, right? Right. And, and it just doesn't make any sense. I mean, mobile home park owner is in a much worse position to solve the marginal customer who cannot afford to live in society than the guy developing the entire block in the major city. Yet they got no pushback at all because the city loves the redevelopment. They love the new tax income they're going to get. They love everything. The, the, all the locals love it. Ooh, look at my new downtown area. And mobile home park owners, we just, as Rodney Dangerfield would say, we get no respect. So that's, that's, that's a problem. But that's, that's the crux of the issue with a lot of the media is we, we are portrayed as evil if we can't solve the marginal customer problem. And, and I'm not in the marginal customer industry, right? I'm in the, if I buy a mobile home park with a hundred residents in it, I'm trying to make, you know, the majority happy. I'm trying to make, you know, nine, nine, 95 of the hundred delighted. And if I have five that, that say, well, I, I like living in the park with giant potholes and the water not working uh, at $95 rent. And everybody else says, no, I want it to be really nice in here so I can be proud to live here with a professional manager for $300 a month, I'm kind of going with the majority because that's how business works. Right, right. And it, se it seems like the media um, really have spin the story on mobile home park owners wrong all this time and there's no resistance from owners. So for someone who is who is new and trying to understand this industry and trying to learn to go into this industry, what's the number one thing that you have to 
kind of change in your mindset before you going in because now if you feel like someone's attacking you because you're the part owner and you don't have the mindset like you like yourself that you're really providing a solution to these people uh, you may just you know collapse and, and sell the park at the end and just call it quit well no what, what happens traditionally is i mean i only get get trouble because of our size so if i owned you know a single mobile home park or a few mobile home parks or even you know, 50 mobile home parks, I wouldn't even be on anyone's radar screen. Um, but what, what happens is, you know, the, the one thing that you can't change, I mean, society changes in its whims and its taste. And, you know, the media is all big on the Kardashians today and tomorrow will be some new thing. So things run in fads. But the thing that doesn't change a, a lot is the law. That's that's what backstops you. So the laws of mobile home park owners are, are very favorable and and uh, and not subject to any any issues so um you know except in a few states there's no there's no rent control and additionally uh, the rights of what is called grandfathering since almost all mobile home parks are grandfathered those are very strong there's been five different state supreme court cases where cities challenged park owners grandfathered rights and the park owners won every single case so uh the, the rules on the evictions for non-payment that's all steady so you just have to kind of ignore it i mean it's you know, mobile home park uh, owners are right now on the media's radar screen, but people will get tired of it because it's not even really a, a story and they'll move on to something else. I don't know what they'll attack next, but, you know, it, it doesn't really from a day to day perspective, it doesn't, Im- infl- it, you know, really impact the business or much of anything uh, for most community owners. It only really affects us because of our size. Got it. Got it. And. Let's transition over to uh, mobile home part. Uh, I mentioned you, you know, your mobile home university. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, just want to touch base with the audience here. So if you're interested in joining Dave and Frank, the next boot camp is in Orange County, California, March 6th through 8th, uh, Nashville, Tennessee, April 17th through 19th, and in Denver from June 5th through June 7th. Now, Frank, what are the top... Um, I'm sure you will touch on this at your at your bootcamp, but what are the top five criteria um, when you're looking at a market for to buy mobile home parks? Okay, well, the, the, the top five criteria in a mobile home park, in fact, we have a little uh, anagram we make of that, which is it's called ideal. It's infrastructure, density, economics, the age of homes, and the location. So those are the five factors. It doesn't matter where in America you're looking at doing it because there's mobile home parks in 49 of the 50 states there's none in hawaii although there actually is one but it's not counted because it's owned by the state of hawaii but uh so what you're looking for is you're looking for a certain set of criteria and then you overlay that on whatever part of america that you live in or want to invest in but really all all parts of america geographically work fine for the industry uh but you've got to have mobile home parks that have the right uh, nuances or, or, or your investment won't work out. Is there any parts that has more favorable law than others in terms of mobile? Uh, parts? Yeah. Well, let, let's go over laws for a minute. Uh, you know, you have, you have very unfavorable laws for being a, uh, landlord in California, uh, Massachusetts, obviously New York, which just passed rent control. Uh, there's some unusual regulations in Florida, 
But by and large, those are about the only states that are a problem from a legal perspective. The bigger issue for most people is the dynamics of the of the city and state and the region uh, as far as the future outlook. And so, you know, you have a, a lot of strength in the Southwest, the Northwest, the Northeast, the what are called the Great Plains, the Midwest, the only area of America that always gets, you know, uh, seems to be riskier than the others is the Southeast. And even then it's not the whole Southeast because Alabama and Georgia have done really well in rebuilding their economies. They're heavy now into manufacturing. It's really just two states. It's Louisiana and Mississippi. Those, those are rough states. Uh, Louisiana, big problem is they're under what's called Napoleonic law. So a lot of lenders just won't make loans there because they don't want to learn Napoleonic law or how you lend, lend there. And then Mississippi, because it, it, you know, it's hard for the average American to even name five cities in Mississippi. I mean, I myself, I'm not sure I could do that. <laughs> and uh, in Mississippi, for whatever reason, it, it, it missed the boat on all of, the, uh, all of this manufacturing. Like the, you haven't had any big auto manufacturers, my knowledge, going to Mississippi or aircraft manufacturing or any of this other stuff. So uh, th- those are probably the only two states that most people are concerned with. Now, in Louisiana you're still seemingly okay if you're in New Orleans, Baton Rouge, or Shreveport. So they do have three markets. I'm sure Mississippi probably has some set of markets that are strong, but the problem you'll have is that from a lending perspective, those two states are hard. And I see that um, in your profile, it says that you have uh, parts in 25 states and and you don't have in the other 25. Is that the 25 state that we should be uh, focusing on? No, the, the the reason we're in the 25 states we're in is number one, you know, D- Dave lives in the Great Plains. I live in the Midwest. You you tend to invest kind of near where you live because that's what you understand. Mm-hmm. So uh, if you look at the parks we own, uh, pretty much the parks are all drivable within probably five to seven hours of where we live. So that's that's our home turf, but. Uh, you know, the most successful mobile home park investors in world history are those who did the parks in California. Um, you know, if you if you ever watch a Clippers or Lakers game on TV, you'll see uh, Jimmy Goldstein. They call him the, you know, the number one fan in the NBA. He has courtside seats at every Lakers and Clippers game. Uh, he's fairly old. I don't know how old he is. I'm guessing 70s, 80s. He's there at every game with uh, he, he has models uh, come to games with him. Uh, he's single. And uh, so they're typically in their 20s, I think. And people see him and he's the guy that owns the house. It was in the big Lebowski and all this. And people always wondered, who is this guy? Well, the guy's a mobile home park owner in L.A. Because in, in L.A., the mobile home parks were built for the same amount of money as they were in Arkansas. But the lot rent in Arkansas today might be $175 a month. And in L.A., a lot of those parks are up to $2,500 a month or more. Oh, wow. So, yeah. So it's it's uh, it's that's that's why. So, and, that, and that's why people in California are willing to, uh, you know, survive all the tough tenant laws is because there's so much revenue at stake. But, no, if, I, if Dave and I could go back in time in a time machine, every park we own would be right in the middle of Los Angeles area. That, cause that's that's the most valuable parks in, in the United States. Or outside Bay Area. Well, yeah, the Bay Area, the, you know, the way that the park industry went, there, there's not that many parks. I and mean, the only the only really uh, like Bay Area park that 
is on the radar screen of people for value is the one that was just sold for nearly $500 million in Sunnyvale, California. Um, but, you know, the, the, uh, like the parks in Malibu where they get 2,500, 3,000 a month per lot. There's a park in, um, oh gosh, what's the name of it? It's, it's, it's on a beach. They get 5,000 a month. I'm blanking on the name of the beach. But um, that's, that's, that's the real big money stuff. Even the Bay Area doesn't have, have $5,000 a month parks. Got it, got it. Now, another thing that I want to ask you is, can you share some some of your top strategies to find mobile home parks to buy? Yeah, what, what, what most people do when they're going to find a mobile home park to buy is the first thing you do is figure out the criteria you want to buy. And you don't want to have it brutal. So for many people, the, the criteria is no master metered gas, no master metered electric, the city of, you know, metro of 100,000 and up. 100,000 and up single family home price, 1,000 a month and up three bedroom apartment rent. And then you just start trying to feed as many potential parks as you can into your filter, just like a list like someone who's panning for gold. And the more dirt you take through your pan, the more chance you have of finding gold. So uh, the top strategies to get deal flow, the, the, the one is online, mobile home park store or LoopNet. There's typically 1,000 parks online right off the bat. Uh, the brokers themselves, that's the number one source, are brokers, predominantly what are called pocket listings, which is non, non-publicly advertised listings. Then you've got uh, direct mail to park owners, cold calling to park owners. Uh, then you also have a, a strategy some people use, which we have used, but it's very, very laborious. And that is literally driving by unannounced and cold calling on park owners. Um but th- those are kind of the methods. If you had to choose just one method of those, you would go with brokers. That's by far the best method. And let's say you don't have the criteria and you see a park on um, the site you mentioned earlier, mobilehomeparkstore.com, and you see that they there's potential. Let's say there's a park that's um, in the rural area somewhere and it's at 50% occupancy right now, and you see that the owner is losing money. Is that something you should jump on right away without going to your uh, mobile home park university and well, put it in the contract? No, the, yeah, here, here, the problem you have is the average American has absolutely no background in mobile home parks at all. I mean, there's no mobile home park class in high school or college. There's no flip or flop show on television for mobile home parks. Right. So most people have absolutely no knowledge. And what makes it scary is they think they can guess how it all works. And if you're going to, you know, invest and risk money, that's not how you would work it. I mean, that's how you might work it if you were going to go to a kid's bowling uh, party and you wanted to bowl and not embarrass yourself. You know, you might spend five minutes to look at a bowling YouTube video or how to bowl or something. And then you just go out there and wing it. And, you know, if everyone's a gutter ball, well, no big deal. Yeah, you're a little embarrassed, but no big deal. If you're going to go out there and like, you know, put down 50 grand, 100 grand, 500 grand on something, you've got to be a little more of an expert than that. So at a bare minimum, anyone buying needs to read up everything they humanly can on the industry, because otherwise you're going to get clobbered. And, you know, those those online listings are, are littered with people who did not understand what makes parks work. And they just thought a park is a park and they've gone out and bought some mobile home park and rural Arkansas and, you know, they're losing their shirt and they'll never get their money back. So they overpaid for it. And so, yeah, if you're going to really spend money, you definitely want to want to do everything you can. If you don't want to go to our 
our boot camp that at a minimum read, read every article, everything you can on the industry, drive in mobile home parks, you know, just, just gather information. I mean, mo- most people gather massive amounts of information, for example, when they're going to buy a car, right? I mean, I don't know anyone who just gut instinct buys a car, just like driving down the highway and pulls into the Chevy dealership and says, Hey, give me one of those new C8 Corvettes without doing massive amounts of research on, you know, what is the C8 Corvette going to do as far as it's, uh, you know, durability and repair cost and all that. Uh, so you got to put at least that much effort into a mobile home park or you're going to get, you're, you'll probably get annihilated. How ready do you think they would be after attending your boot camp to take over a park? Well, very ready. You know, the New York Times came to our boot camp. That was part of their story. When, when they lived in the park, they also came to our boot camp and then followed along with people. And they found that 30% of everyone there bought a mobile home park, which oh, wow. is like the highest stat in American history. And that's because we give you, by virtue of being there, literally everything you would need. And then additionally, I allow people to call me and bounce their deals off me. I get several calls a day. And I just tell them, based on my just my opinion and experience of whether it's a good idea or not. And um, so that also helps because a lot of people, will, even once you've learned how to do it, you're still a little nervous doing it. You don't really know, is it going to work? Is it not? And so the very fact that I'm there to like help them gives them a lot of confidence in doing it. And do you partner with uh, your students? No, because of our size, we really can't anymore. Uh, back when we were smaller, we did some deals, but today we're so huge that that would be impossible because for us to partner with someone, they would have to have the same financial strength that we have uh, to get financing and homes and all that stuff. It, it, it just would not work out. Got it. We're almost out of time. I just want to give you one more question before I let you go, Frank. Sure. Tell me something that is true, but almost no one agree with you on. That no, no one agrees with me on? Yes. Uh, the thing that no one agrees with, with me on, obviously is the, uh, well, I guess if we pick one item, I'll have to fall back to my Waffle House quote uh, that has uh, been the biggest uh, nightmare ever. When I did a, uh, a piece with Bloomberg, a reporter asked me why we had the lowest bank default rate, and I explained to them it was because if you have a restaurant which has the highest default rate uh, in the U.S., the reason is when you open the restaurant, you don't know if anyone's going to walk in the doors. They might never walk in and you go bankrupt. Whereas if you own a mobile home park, it's like owning a Waffle House where the customers are chained to the booths. So you know that you will have X number of customers there every day. Uh, that quote gets thrown in my face all the time that I somehow, uh, you know, was talking in an evil manner concerning our customers. It wasn't even concerning customers. It was concerning uh, the very simple fact that mobile home park revenues are insanely stable because the residents, you know, they're there. And they and they don't leave, and that's uh, it's something that every everyone whines and complains that our our customers are stuck in their mobile homes, but it's simply not true. I mean, anyone can sell their mobile home; they could rent their mobile home out. They have a million things they could do with their mobile home. The problem is, many of the customers who are marginal, who who end up moving out because they can't afford to pay any any form of modern rent, they always use that as an excuse of how they were beat up on because it would cost them $5,000 to move their mobile home. But that's simply not the case. I mean, if you want to move your mobile home, there are other park owners such as ourselves that will pay for free to move your mobile home to our, our own park. So the idea that the mobile home is stuck 
is nonsense. It's not stuck. You can move the mobile home. And if you choose not to move it, you could always sell it where it is or you could rent it, rent it to anyone. So you have three distinct options with your mobile home that you own if you don't want to live there anymore. But you have to enact one of those three options. And often the marginal customer doesn't have the time to enact the option because they haven't paid the rent. They know they haven't paid the rent. They know they're being evicted for non-payment. And then this is always a good media excuse they throw out. But it's something that is com- it's completely untrue. Yet, no matter who I tell it to, they always, they just disregard that complete basic truth. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time with us today, Frank. I've learned a lot from you. Well, great. Thanks for having me here. Labmates, that's all we have for today's episode. Make sure you check out Frank's website at www.mobilehomeuniversity.com. And hey, he is doing an event in June. Hopefully, we'll all be able to go to his event at that point. Um, it's going to be in Denver. So make sure you check out the bootcamp section of his website. And hey, be sure to head on over to iTunes, subscribe, give me a five-star rating, and leave a review. Thank you for listening. That's the end of the show. Don't forget to subscribe, leave a five-stars rating and review on iTunes for the Real Estate Lab podcast. Until next time, have a prolific week.